All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, this edition of the Classroom Critics. I'm Bill Ivers, and I'm joined with Walter Freeman and Andrew Martino. And uh, tonight we're in our effort to kind of review some more, some, you know, critique some films that are more recent. Uh, we decided to do uh, this year's Best Picture winner, mm -hmm. 2019 film, Parasite. So this will be, uh, we were talking before, this is going to be the mispronunciation edition. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best to uh, <laughs> get some of the names right. But I'd like to sort of dive in without giving much background information here. This is, um, for me, this is, and I think this is the case for Andrew as well, the first film that we're critiquing, first episode on a film that we've seen just once. That's right. So this, this should be interesting. This is very fresh. I just saw this two nights ago. Um, Andrew, you said you saw this last saw night. Last night, yeah. Last night, Walter, within the week, I, right? I watched it right away earlier in the week, I think Friday, um, after our last podcast. Mm -hmm. and, and if I'm if I'm if I'm correct, this is our first foreign film, isn't it? Yep. I think you're I think you're right about that. Yeah. So, right. but I do want to point out when we did the original Lost episode of Other Side of the Wind, you guys had only seen that once. So you. That's true. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> right. Maybe that should have been a hint. <laughs> yeah. But um, no. This is you know for me. I guess I can get the ball rolling here. Uh, I just want to start off by saying I was blown away. Mm. by this movie i was uh it, it just it sucked me in immediately i was hooked i was shocked at several points in the film um i found this film to be extremely original that's a big thing for me i just you know i find that films that impress me are films that sort of tell stories in you know offbeat ways and i think this this kind of uh fits that bill and, um, you know, of course, I think that the texture of the film is, is very interesting. The fact that it was, um, you know, focusing on a culture with, uh, obviously norms that aren't familiar to us in many cases, I thought it was, uh, just, just very, very interesting. What about you? What are some of your, um, first impressions? Did, did you like it? Uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was terrific. So I, I, I went in with, with, I didn't know what to expect. Um, the only thing I really knew about it other than the, uh, the four, um, Academy Awards it won was that it was a, a, a kind of dark comedy. Um, so I really didn't know much about it other than that. So uh, like you, Bill, I was hooked from the very first scene, um, uh, you know, with the holding up of the cell phone, uh, in that basement apartment and, you know, the, the, that the Kim family living in squalor. And, and I think it gets you right at the beginning. And um, I, I think the director, um, Bong Joon-ho, did a, a fantastic job. Um, and this is, of course, based on the original story he wrote, and he wrote the screenplay as well. So it really is one of those, um, I dare say, an auteur film, uh, I think, from him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had seen um, his film Snowpiercer. Uh, which was in English, and I was really impressed with the film, and I, and I, I want to revisit it again, but I went into this film, I, for some reason I had it in my head, it was a horror movie, uh, <laughs> because every time I read about, you know, th this family moves in, something goes wrong, and I thought, you know, something they can't get rid of, and I thought there was something, so I sat down with my wife, and this is the interesting thing, my wife uh, is a sporadic movie watcher, uh, and she really needs to be super entertained by a film, and I thought, when I sat down to watch it and asked her to join me, that a Korean film in subtitles would not be in her wheelhouse. And she was riveted. Mm. And, and so was I. And we both uh, thoroughly enjoyed the film. 
Um, I just, uh, I, I thought it was fantastic. And the more I have thought about it since I've seen it and the layers that, you know, in reflection that you start to see, um, it's, it's definitely going to bear repeat viewings. And I'm also going to go back and revisit Snowpiercer. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. I was going to say, um, kind of a similar thing happened with my wife. We, she, she likes to often multitask when we watch, watch a film. And, uh, so we kind of put this one off for, for weeks and, uh, she was actually working on some planning, uh, we're both teachers, as you guys know, and, uh, it didn't take long for her just to put the work aside and, uh, just completely invested in, uh, in these characters. So I, I don't think there's a moment in, you know, if, if you've never seen this film before, I don't think there's a moment in the film where you can predict what's coming next. No. Um, and not that it throws wild curveballs at you. I mean, a couple, yeah. But for the most part, the story, to me, it felt very organic. It didn't feel forced or contrived, even though wild and crazy things happen. But it, uh, you just sit there and you're, you're just constantly taken in a different direction by the film. Uh, and and the, the tonal changes and the, the direction of the characters. So, you know, that to me was fantastic. Yeah, the story for me was a lot like peeling an onion. Uh, and th this particular family gets, you know, it, it's a snowball effect and, and they get more and more caught up uh, with, with the Park family, the family that they, they kind of uh, move in on. And it, it just, they get to a point where they can't get out of it. And it's really, really interesting um, to see them navigate that particular uh, situation. I, I also, um, metaphors can be tricky. Uh, you can you can certainly they can be too subtle or they can be way overdone, but to me this 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 film relied heavily on metaphors the the smell of the lower class the 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 rock that was given as a present the living uh, underneath the rich the feeding off the rich and and to me this was just such a a really skillful use of metaphor and even one of the characters at one point in the film I think they were giving them the the rock and. And he was having a hard time saying, you know, why is this important? He, he flat out says it's metaphorical. Yeah. And that just, uh, you know, to me, they you really, um, really chose a very apt symbolism and metaphor for the film. Mm -hmm. But I think what's great, I think, as we probably have mentioned in other episodes, you know, the story should come first, you mm -hmm. know, and, and this was just very entertaining, you know, I mean, on, on the level of that it's just uh it just again sucks you in and uh just i think a very unique unique plot you know um lots of twists and turns but it's a film that says that says something as well so it's not just a good story and on the other hand it's not just this uh you know this heavy-handed uh you know pretentious social statement it's right you know it, it's a, ca a case where the storytelling uh, trumps everything, but obviously there's a uh, a message there if you if you want. Yeah, I'm not saying the message is unbelievably subtle. I mean, the, the message is pretty out there. Yeah, but it's not. Um, you know, it's not heavy-handed. No, I think that you know the class issues that that take part in the film. I think are 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 definitely there to to, to make us think. But the more I thought about this film, what I really appreciated was I, I think it's a it's also a commentary on acting itself because the Kim family they're all acting a certain part and and some of them are playing multiple parts 
So yeah. I really found it interesting how they got into these roles of, of playing um, actors, uh, you know, in these particular situations. And there's that one scene that comes almost towards the end when when they're in the park house and the parks go off to a, a kind of camping trip. So the Kim family is there occupying it, and and I'm not giving anything away, but the Park family do not know that the Kim family are all related. They think that they're all separate people. And um, remember that the, the wife says something to the husband and, and, he, and he, um, he grabs her by the throat and then he kind of turns around after this really serious, um, they're all drinking whiskey after this really serious scene. And, and he says something like, I, I was acting there. Did you see how good I was? Or something to that effect. <laughs> Which yeah. I really appreciated. Yep, yep. And uh, it's kind of a leading question because I have a, my own opinion about this, but I think one thing that's really neat about this film is I didn't feel that the director really sided with anyone. You know, uh, often when there's a story of social commentary, it's clear where the director, I mean, obviously the director is, uh, is saying something pretty profound here. And, um, but you don't get the, he created a very likable, wealthy, yeah. upper class family um, that, you know, that we, we grow to kind of, you know, adore, not adore, but we, we certainly like them. I mean, I, I found myself, uh, you know, um, interested in them. I didn't find them to be this, um, you know, overly oppressive, uh, awful, you know, family as the wealthy are often portrayed in, in films of so social commentary. And uh, in many cases, you can almost say that they're more, more likable. If that's, if that's a uh, phrase I can use more, um, I don't know. Then the other family, then the, um, you know, the, see, I'm, I'm, since it's fresh in my head, I'm still yeah. uh, thinking of names and I can only refer to them as, uh, <laughs> the Kims, the Kims, the poor yeah. family, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Did, did you think that, um, did the director in your mind side with, uh, one family over the other or, I didn't. I thought I actually thought everyone in the film was likable and, and equally unlikable, if that's possible. Um, but there were moments when I liked all of them. Uh, and, and the Kim family, I, I certainly felt for to a certain degree. Uh, and then they they become arrogant and, and they start one upping themselves. Yeah. And I, I thought Mr. Park was a relatively sympathetic character right up until the very end. Uh, although now that I'm thinking about it, there were subtle um, uh, fissures in his character, uh, especially when he comments about um, the smell that's attached to, to Mr. Kim and, and some of the Kim uh, family. Um, so, you know, there's subtleties there. Definitely. I, um, and I saw it a little differently. I, I actually um, didn't like both families, uh, yeah. and I th but I thought in an even-handed way. They were like a bull but they just kept doing stuff like in the beginning, even in the beginning, before they had this opportunity, the Kim family were grifters. They were, yeah. you know, not making the pizza box as well. And, and just, and, and as soon as he gets the job, he starts to become a parasite. He starts to worm his way in. And I, I kept feeling bad because apparently this is a, a poor economy. The story is taking place in and, and they were getting people fired that were struggling to make a living right. just like them. And then as far as the parks go, um, they, Mr. Park seemed a bit of a blank, but he also, to me, seemed arrogantly removed from hmm. things like, uh, you know, he would come home, having his wife having raised the children all day and, and be kind of standoffish. Uh, and he, as Andrew said, he he grows progressively uh, cracks in the armor as the yep. story unfolds. So I, but from the beginning, I thought to myself, 
Um, he's pulling off a neat trick here because I don't sympathize with any of these guys, and yet I'm kind of rooting for them. I wanted the, the yeah. Kims to succeed, and I wanted the Parks not to have their house destroyed, and yet they also all deserved it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you, as you guys, as I'm thinking about this movie, I'm kind of in real time almost considering, and, and I think you're right, Walt. I think there's just, a, you know, there's, they're likable, but maybe to say that I like them might be too strong. Um, you know, the wife of the upper class family, you know, she just, she seemed nice enough, but there was like a, you know, she has like a frustrating, almost aloofness to her. And gullibility. Yeah, right, right. Which that could be obviously detrimental to some people, you know, and to some lives. You could see her daughter was kind of gullible as well. And then the son, of course, was just his, his ADHD and hyperactivity were, were not at all being addressed. It was right. being indulged. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Right. And so in the end, um, when the flood comes, uh, speaking of nice metaphors, uh, I just, you know, that's when I really felt for the Kims. They, they went back there and they see everything wiped out. You know, they're living in that nether region between underground yeah. and above ground, but how so far above it all, the parks were, they were there. They're not, they live in that little oasis of the house on the top of the hill. They're, they're not flooded out. And they even, you know, while people are suffering, they're just throwing a, a garden party. Yeah. 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 I, I, I particularly like that flood scene because it's not, it's not only a metaphor for the flood, but it's also a flood of shit, right? Because they're talking about the sewage that's, that's running through the streets. And of course um, that scene where the toilets blowing up, uh, you know, constantly. And um, you know, th those are times when I think the metaphors could come off a little too heavy handed, but um, I, I think the director does a really good job um, in downplaying that as much as he can. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the flood built subtly. I mean, it, it just started yeah. as a rainstorm in the background right. for a long time. I mean, a right. lot of other directors might have said, flood come in, let's, yep. you know, let's prepare the meaning. But it, it really snuck up on you. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I might watch this again in a week and, and say to myself, wow, how <laughs> how broad and obvious these metaphors are. You know, it's just yeah. – <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, Walt, now that I think of it, you mentioned how, um, you know, the – the horrors of, of what's happening at the bottom of the hill, you know, it's something, you know, it, it seems like when you're that powerful, you're that rich, you know, you have the ability to, again, I'll use the word aloof. You can shut it out. You can turn your back on it. You can ignore it. You have that ability. I mean, we kind of see that, you know, now as, as we sit in quarantine, you know I mean? Yeah. And, uh, you know, some people have the luxury and the, uh, the privilege of, you know, going through this whole ordeal in very comfortable situations, just basically waiting it out in, uh, you know, in their mansions, you know, and I, I personally, I feel very blessed myself that I, you know, I have a, you know, a nice home and, you know, I feel very lucky when some people probably, or not probably, but are certainly uh, dealing with it in a very close and real, uh, real way. And with this family, the what are the what's the upper class uh, upper class family? What's their what are they? The, the Parks. The parks. They, you know, they literally had the outside world shut out, mm -hmm. and it even within their own house they had this this horrible situation in literally in their basement that they were completely aloof right to and, and blind to, and uh, it literally snuck up on them. I mean, if you remember the scene, and in fact, I remember watching this, 
the guy was, you know, came up the stairs, walked through several rooms, walked into the backyard as this, as the festivities were, were taking place. And he stood there uh, with a knife and a bloody face and a bloody face. And still they were completely in their own world. Nothing, nothing bad could possibly happen to them. Right. Yeah. To this family. It, it, everything was, everything was awesome. Everything was good. And then finally it wasn't. <laughs> so I found that to, to be a very interesting directorial choice where instead of, um, you know, instead of like just one person discovering it early or, or catching on, you know, he was right there in the midst of everything. And uh, within seconds, there were, the entire existence of this family was turned upside. Both families were turned upside down. So, you know, what's real was to me was really cool about this film is this this makes a statement about class that is not specific to a society or a culture, and I think that you know, probably contributed largely to it, to its win as best picture is that, that this is something that is fairly universal for people who, you know, know what it's like to live amongst the haves and the have nots. Yeah. Yep. I was going to ask you too about that. What, what are your thoughts about this winning best picture? It was up against some, some, you know, traditional heavyweights, but this is, this is the first foreign film to, to win best picture. Mm. So I, I looked it up because I was interested to see, you know, what was the, because I'd asked you guys after I'd seen and you hadn't, did, you know, I'm not, I don't know if this is the best picture or not. And obviously the more I talk about it, I think I, I'm seeing it, but here's, here's what it was up against. Uh, and I've seen some of these and I haven't seen others. So 1917, which Sam Mendes, World War One, yeah. uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Didn't see that. Joker, which we all saw and I, I none of us liked. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Parasite, The Irishman, Little Women, Jojo Rabbit, and Marriage Story. Yeah. So I, I've seen a couple of those, not all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen – I've not seen Marriage Story yet. I hear it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen all the others with the exception of um, Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, I think we get into, uh, you know, discussions about awards and what they really mean. And I think I think it was a pretty good year. You know, I, mm-hmm. a lot of those films that you're naming, I'm saying to myself, yeah, there's some good competition there. And if one of those won, you know, I probably wouldn't have many gripes about it. And, but, um, you know, besides Joker, I'm, I wasn't a fan of that. But um, if the Irishman won it, I'd say, sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy that Parasite did win, you know, and um, I'm not um, going to complain about it. So I think uh, for me personally, I, I found it to be the most um, original, mm. you know, of, of the films that I've seen this year and uh, perhaps the most thematically potent that I've seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it winning Best Picture. It wins four Oscars, right? So it, it won Best Picture, uh, it won Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best International Feature Film. So it really did run away with with all of the other competitions. So I, I, I suppose I'm thinking, what does this say about American cinema? Uh, is this a commentary on on 
maybe the superhero films. It's a, a backlash against that, although they're very rarely. And I, I don't know if I consider Joker a superhero film, um, but, you know, it might be a backlash against that, although it's they're rarely up for Oscar nominations. And um, I, I really I hadn't seen it, obviously, when it won, but I watched the Academy Awards that night. I was really thrilled that a, that a foreign uh, picture won best feature film. I, I thought that was a real step forward. Uh, in talking about the globalization of cinema, and it's not just coming out of Hollywood. So I'm, I'm interested to to get your take, uh, both of your takes on that. Well, I think it does. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. Um, I, I think I think it speaks poorly to American cinema, or at least Hollywood, that we have two of the films which were funded by Netflix yeah. with, um, that were nominated. So I guess you can make the case that neither one of those films, Marriage Story or The Irishman would have been, maybe there are others, but those are the only two I know of that were funded by a streaming service, mm -hmm. uh, which to me tells me that, and I know that's the case with The Irishman, that major, a major studio would not back it, um, right. you know, in the traditional, uh, um, I've got another message here. Um, sorry folks, a Zoom window came up. All right, and uh, then you have uh, Parasite, which, as I said, is a foreign film. So three of the three of the uh, nominees were not really made within the traditional uh, Hollywood system, right? And uh, so I I question whether or not Parasite would have been um, produced by an American studio. Probably not. If mm -hmm. um, let's say an American uh, director uh, wanted to produce that. Uh, have it be a, an American story. I wonder if, uh, right. if that would have been produced. Probably not. Right. And I, I'm struck by, um, you know, they've expanded the, the field. Yep. And, and sometimes you, you worry that that's going to water down the choices a little bit. Um, but this was a strong field. And, and even though I didn't personally care for Joker, and I have very mixed feelings about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the, the films on this list that I've seen and the ones that I've talked to people about this was a strong field. Yeah. And so, you know, um, to make that choice, uh, you know, really parasite, I think, I think, you know, rose above it in people's eyes because I think of its universality, but also its originality as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, you could say that, uh, you know, it's, it's a poor, uh, direction that we're taking, uh, in Hollywood, but, you know, the streaming services, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, you know, it's a, it's a very viable way to get a film made. And mm -hmm. I guess if it doesn't, um, if it, if it doesn't get the, the distribution, then that's just something we're going to have to accept going forward that we may not get to see some of these great films on the big screen. We'll just have to, uh, watch them in a new way. And I'd rather have that than not see them get produced at all. So I agree with you. Yeah. I think that that's a, a, a really important point that we have these streaming services that are stepping up and, and financing these, these, um, these films that, you know, it's, as we said a couple of uh, episodes ago, it's mind boggling to me that something like the Irishman wouldn't have gotten funding, uh, you know, a Martin Scorsese film. So, um, and, and to your earlier point, Bill, I think that if, if the Hollywood system would have taken this film, they wouldn't have produced it. They would have made a remake of it with American actors in an American setting, which, uh, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies and shows that we see on Netflix and some other uh, services are doing. Yeah. Yeah. 
if you look at the streaming services too, you know, we'll, we'll, we can say Netflix is one of the largest, but there's so many out there. They're producing a, a, a ton of original content and, and, you know, movie, movie style serials. Like I just finished watching three seasons of Ozark, which, mm-hmm. you know, whether people like it or not, the production value is incredibly lavish. Uh, and if you, you know, if you look at the films they're producing, whether they're shows or full length films, they're, they're like these massive studios and, and the studios aren't producing this volume anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that's because the studios have, you know, they've gobbled each other up that we now have, uh, you know, two or three studios that are running at that are dominating uh, American cinema. And I think, too, um, Netflix there. I hate to use this trendy term, but their revenue stream isn't necessarily based on box office unless you want to consider streaming subscriptions box office. But I mean, you you go to a movie, you pay, you, you know, your money. You go to Netflix, you pay a flat fee, and you get all this content. Yeah. And so, I mean, they're just, uh, it's a juggernaut right now. I wonder why Netflix does not have their own theater chain. I mean, wouldn't that be to to premiere films? Imagine if there were Netflix theaters and, you know, different areas of the country where they they could screen these films for, I don't know, weeks, months maybe, and then have them download, uh, streamed directly onto their, their platform. I'm sure they thought about it. Netflix, if you want to do that, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll take a cut. Is and with COVID-19, cool? that might be the case now where we, we, we won't be seeing films in theaters for, for quite some time. So, uh, you know, now with, the, with this plague upon us that it's really going to affect how we watch movies. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I was thinking that as well. You know, it's a film about capitalism and um, mm-hmm. the ramifications of capitalism. Uh, and, you know, it makes me think, what are the, is this pandemic that we're facing? I mean, we certainly see in the near aftermath is it's, you know, the film industry is going to be affected. We yeah. hear of various film productions that have uh, been put on hold, premieres that have been put on hold. And you wonder what the ripple effect of that's going to be. Do we, I'm sure there have been many projects that we haven't yet heard, we haven't heard about yet mm. where the, the plug has been pulled on them. And I would think the plug is going to be pulled on projects that are considered more of a risk. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, when it comes to a, a business model, the film industry is not a sure thing. And, but you do have, very astute businessmen basically running the industry when it comes, when it comes down to it. So it would only make sense that they would want to return on their investment. And then some, it wouldn't be a business unless they wanted, you know, <laughs> unless they were in it for profit. So of course they're going to go for sure things and they're going to go for uh, formula and what works. And so uh, I don't know. I fear that within the next few years, we're going to see, um, just a different landscape, different cinematic landscape. And I don't know, but I can only think, I can only assume that the quality is going to go down. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but it just seems to me that that might be just the inevitable thing that the company quality of life in other areas is certainly going to go down at least short term. Uh, it would make sense that the film industry is going to also be affected. It's really interesting because I think what we're seeing now, and if this goes on, you know, 
who knows how long this will go on. Um, but we are seeing this return to the arts and, and how the arts are needed. Um, could you think of being under quarantine without Netflix or Hulu or any of those streaming services? Uh, we'd really be in trouble then. So I actually take the opposite point of view. I'm, I, I'm thinking that there's going to be this resurgence of more creative uh, films and more creative television shows and, and music. The delivery m mode might be different, but I really believe that we're going to see a, a, a renaissance in film. And I do think that that HBO and, and Netflix and, and, and Epics and some of those other services are, are going to be responsible for that because they're putting the money into these projects. And, and we've had some great storytelling with, okay. with some of those services. And they're producing so much that it's almost like, let's throw everything against the wall right. and see what sticks. I mean, how many, you know, I scroll through 99% of the content on the streaming services to focus on the few things that I watch. Sure. And then you have something like Tiger King that takes off and right. inexplicably, but I mean, how many, I mean, you can just go through show after show or movie after movie and just pass right by and they can afford to do that. That's the, it's almost like we're watching Parasite play out as a metaphor for the movie industry. There's yeah. a the Look at us. <laughs> Look at us here. No, um, no, I hear you guys, but what I fear is if there is recession and God forbid worse, then, you know, who's going to be paying for these uh, subscriptions? So if you see cancellations left and right and people not being able to dish out 50 bucks to take their family to a movie, uh, you're going to see a tightening of the belt by a lot of production companies. And right now, as we speak, we have so many different productions that have been put on hold. Mm -hmm. So there might be a dry spell, maybe not this year, maybe not even next year, but the films that aren't being made right now, um, there might be just a lull, you know, at least. So, I mean, hopefully the economy bounces back you know that's what we all would hope for but um you know certainly one of the first things to go in everyone's budget is unfortunately entertainment right i don't know i i'm thinking that entertainment might be one of the last to go i think people will sacrifice a lot of other things over um their netflix account i i, I have and i have no data to back this up but I, it's just a feeling i have that that is going to be something that people will jealously hold on to, um, even to the point of sacrificing other other parts of their lives. Right. Well, look how popular movies were during the Great Depression, right. World War II, when when you know um, people turned to the arts to you know stave off the the bleakness of everyday life or the horrors of war. But then you get into areas where you couldn't make necessarily um, a film that was too sobering during, during the depression, you, you know, they wanted to see uplifting mm -hmm. optimistic films that perhaps, uh... all right, guys, we're back. Sorry. We um, zoom kicked us off for some reason. So we have a little interruption there. So welcome to part two, right? So part two. I forget exactly what subtopic we were on, but we we're sort of carrying over this discussion into um, some of the realities that the economic downturn might present to filmmaking in the film industry. And hopefully, you know, I, I would love to think that it would uh, 
spark creativity and uh, help society realize that, you know, in dark times, we need storytelling, we need fiction, we need uh, make believe. Mm-hmm. And um, however, money is also needed. It's, a, it's an expensive medium. So, uh, you know, one thing that's cool, you know, I'm, I'm seeing through social media, so many different people being creative in, in many different ways as someone who is um, involved in theater to a certain extent. There's so many interesting ways that people are making theater, despite the fact that theater doors are now uh, padlocked and mm-hmm. a lot of it's done via Zoom and video, social media, which is cool. It's it's just uh, one of the realities that we have to face and you got to do what you can. Well, you know, some of the greatest comedy ever came <clears throat> out of the silent film area because they couldn't use sound. And I think we mentioned last week how great a movie Jaws was because the shark wouldn't function. So I think when artists are forced to get out of their comfort zones and find ways around problems, it, it, it can be really inspirational. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. That's, you know, getting back to Orson Welles, he made a career of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was limited his entire, uh, his, for his entire career. Always went in search of the happy accident, right? Exactly. Right. So I was I was in in our break when we were kicked off. I I, I looked it up, and um, so the budget for this film, Parasite, was eleven million bucks, a little bit a little bit over eleven million dollars. Its first opening weekend in the United States, it made just about four hundred thousand um, dollars. To date, globally, it's made somewhere around two hundred, just shy of two hundred fifty-five million dollars. So um, it's it's a huge hit, and it's more than made its money. Um, and so we were talking about the need for storytelling, especially in times like this, uh, not only with the economic downturn, but with, with most of the world under uh, some type of quarantine. I'm thinking that perhaps this is, if there is a silver lining or more than one silver lining, um, the need for more stories from outside of our, of our backyards, from outside of the United States, for example. 11 million, you said? It made a it, say that again. I'm sorry. The budget was 11 million. The, the budget was just over 11 million. That's, that's absolutely minuscule, right? By right. today's by today's standards, and that, I think it tells us that there is a need for you know storytelling that doesn't necessarily have uh, that's not connected to a franchise that doesn't have special effects that is pretty intimate and uh, you know it, low in cost. So I just. Uh-huh. I think your your use of the word intimate is dead on. I think one of the reasons I like this film so much is because it was quiet. There there was no loud explosions. There was, you know, there was no shouting, no yelling other than a few parts here and there. But it was really one of those quiet films where you get to see the camera operations and you're paying attention to the camera angles and you're paying attention to the acting and the storytelling. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's really, really, I, I think... I think it's a masterpiece. I don't know what, what you two um, feel about it. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I really do think this film will be remembered. It's, I think it's one of those, you know, it is a lot of best pictures. They have the accolades in the moment. They win, they win the best picture award, and, and you kind of forget about them. And yeah. you're reminded, oh, yeah, that one best picture 10 years ago. And you go back decades, there are many best picture films that have won best picture that are kind of forgotten at least um by most people but i think this is one that will uh i'll go back to i'll, I'll certainly uh i almost wish it was one of those films that could be taught in film studies but i think at the high school level but i think it might be over the line in some 
areas, if I remember correctly. And the violence <laughs> got, at the end, yeah. The violence, yeah. So, masterpiece, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll roll with that. I I think it's uh, if it's that standard for me. I don't. I have not seen Snowpiercer, so I have nothing to compare it to with his with his earlier films. But I I know you you've seen it well, as you said earlier. So, um, a two two part response. Um, first, I, I think it's a masterpiece because it's timeless. I think you're going to be able to watch this film in fifteen and twenty years, and humanity does not necessarily ever learn these lessons right. about you know what, taking you know the class system. Um, Snowpiercer also examines the idea of class. Um, it, it's in a more of a science fictiony setting. It's uh, there's been a catastrophe, and the world is covered with snow, and the only thing left is this train that's constantly circling. And the, um, the poorest people live in the back of the train and the rich people live in the front and there's a revolution and the poor people start making their way to the front. And it had some big name stars. It had, uh, um, Chris Evans from, uh, the Captain America movies and Tilda Swinton and Ed Harris, who's always good. And, uh, so, you know, this guy had some clout before he made that film. Um, I haven't seen his other pieces. I know he has a film called Oakjo where he also, uh, does an examination of class, but he really, he's, he's good at this topic. You know how some artists like to pick at a theme. Mm -hmm. uh, he's good at this. Mm -hmm. and, and I think another thing I like is even though this is a foreign film, it, it's not coming from Europe, right? So it's, it's not a French film or an Italian film or a Spanish film um, that we're getting really an, an Asian film that is, um, and there are a lot of them. I'm hoping this opens the door for more of, of, of Asian cinema to, to make its way to the United States and hopefully find an audience. Right. I mean, it starts with distribution and right. there, there's certainly room for foreign language cinema here. It just, you know, there, there seems to be um, such an over overexposure of a lot of these franchise films that are just filling the theater. So you really have to look for films like Parasite, you know, in the, I'm not sure if Parasite was screened in your mm -hmm. whatever suburban cinemagic. I couldn't tell you if it was, um, but something tells me that you probably had to seek it out into in the uh, you know the downtown cinemas, major metropolitan areas. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the houses. But what's that? I said the the term is select theaters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Andrew, what did you say the the United, the box office take in the United States was you had that I thought for for opening weekend it was just under four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's not a lot, but right. But if, I'm sure I'm 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 I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure it opened in in limited release. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll look back at this movie, this that one best picture, and say you know what this is. This was when the door was kicked wide open. Yeah. And you start to see more foreign film nom nominations. And, uh, you know, the world is getting smaller. I mean, I would like to think that, right? Right, <laughs> that, right. that these divisions might get less and less, uh, you know, stark. And, and so I just think hopefully that next, next year we'll see another, maybe a couple of uh, Best Picture nominees that are foreign language films. If, uh, if we could, for a moment, go back to the, to the film itself, I'm interested to, because this is really what struck me the most is, um, and I'm interested to get your take, what did you think of the lighting of the film? Honestly, I, I'm sitting here thinking, like, I really, I really should have watched this a second time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to, but it's, um, 
in terms of technique, uh, directorial choices, that's, it's a film. I, I want to really look at those more closely, yeah. including, including lighting. Um, so I can't really speak specifically to that. It, it wasn't, I didn't find it, it didn't stand out to me, um, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed, you know, in the, in the, um, Kim's apartment, of course, it, it's very well lit, but you can see so how cramped and mm-hmm. every detail you know, the, the Parks house seemed sterile and right. there's a lot of harsh angular lighting um, in the basement under the Parks house. There's all those dark tunnels with a kind of, a, I think, a grayish or bluish hue. Yeah. And then I remember first seeing the rainstorm uh, in the uh, outside the Parks window. And, you know, it's it's very sort of the lighting made it seem very peaceful and idyllic. And then when you get back down to the uh, the Kim's apartment, it it seemed, uh, I'm trying to remember how that was lit. All I remember is all the elements in the scene just created this sense of urgency. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought, uh, you know, great attention to detail was paid. Um, I know the, uh, I would bet that most of the budget that you mentioned, the 11 and a half million went to both the rainstorm and the building of the parks house. Cause that was completely a set. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I kind of got off of the lighting topic, but I just, I just think that they, you know, he used it very subtly, but, but very effectively to create the mood of the different um, zones of the film. Exactly. Yeah. It was the first film I've, I've really thought about lighting in a long time. I mean, with, with Kubrick, I've always noticed the lighting and how he lights his scenes. And I, I also do the, the same thing with, with some of Francis Ford Coppola films uh, as well. So uh, from those two, it's, this was the first film I really noticed the lighting. And I, I, I completely agree with, with your uh, assessment of that. Well, mm-hmm. I also noticed you mentioned Stanley Kubrick and uh, with 2001 A Space Odyssey, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a lot of food in that movie, a yeah. lot of people eating. And I noticed with this movie that there's a lot of food. Yeah. Uh, food seems to be um, thematic, how the different classes eat. I, was it just me or am I just, is, is it? No, you're laughing. right on, I think, yeah. I'm laughing because the scene when they came home early and she made the beef ramen, yeah, and there, she just ate it and ate it for like five minutes, and I kept saying to my wife, "I want ramen so bad right now." <laughs> yes, it looks so good. And everything to the peaches, right? And and how how the first housekeeper was allergic to peaches, so it isn't just sustenance, but it's also poison in that sense. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I just love the scene where um, the guy downstairs in the basement. He was able to uh, no, no, it was uh, it was the Kim, uh, the Kim father, who eventually. Uh, took over mm-hmm. and uh, he was able to come up nightly, right? Or, or every week at least to uh, supply his, uh, yeah. his own uh, food without being detected. So it just seems like there was always an effort to, um, to get food somehow by these characters. And I do remember the ramen and, and just saying, yeah. I wish <laughs> I want that right now. It looks yeah. so good. It did. It did. So it always struck me how when uh, when the Kims first started taking over and they were getting all of those people fired. uh, Yeah. On one hand, the film, it makes a very complicated statement about class and all because on one hand, you know, they are the have nots trying to get their share. And and yet they uh, are willing to engage in the same predatory practices that that the rich are accused of by taking advantage of the poor. And so it's not an easy uh, good guy, bad guy kind of scenario. 
Um, and yeah. I think we talked about that earlier, but he does a great job of sort of um, being pretty even handed in his take on who's to blame and who's acting badly. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I really love that there wasn't this, you know, um, he had to create the, the, the noble peasant versus the yeah. overly oppressive, uh, you know, upper class uh, family. It was, you know, again, you just, you find different reasons to dislike these characters, different reasons to like them. Mm-hmm. I like that the father, the Kim father was um, cast at the, the, I'm not sure who the actor is, but he was on some level, at least for a lot of the movie, very comical. You know, he was kind of a comical character, kind of a bumbling, um, unfortunate character who, you know, in the end he, he ended up being obviously a, a murderer and, and, it was just very interesting that this character that we were once kind of like laughing at, who seemed kind of like this cuddly, lovable, um, you know, underhanded individual who you kind of felt for in many ways, just ended up being, uh, and what do you think about that? Why did he, what, what happened to him? What, what made him go from the, the, the father that he was who, certainly cared about his family. Why did he, did he, did he black out? Was it just some sort of psychotic episode? And was it just, he's he's holding his daughter's wound and she's screaming that he's trying to stop the bleeding and it hurts. His son is being carried up with, you know, dripping head wound. And Mr. Park comes over and tosses him the keys and says, you know, take my son to the hospital because he's having a seizure. And I think he just snapped. Um, you know, and it's, and it's, oh, I know why too, because uh, I think uh, Mr. Park was holding his nose again because they, they were, yep. they were right. building that up. And I, that was, you know, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think that that's what I liked about it is he's such a genial kind of lovable rogue. And then, then he just, you know, he's obviously being affected by this and he snaps. And you see it. It's it's one of those subtleties that's layered in the film because you see him, you know, uh, Mr. Kim smelling his clothes when he when he overhears Mr. Park talk about it, or when he's driving Mr. Park, he he you know he looks down and and he he starts to smell himself as if somehow he is a, a subhuman that that you know it's more than class. They're no longer they're not on the same um, species uh, uh, plane that that someone like Mr. Park is. Yep. You know, it's a very clear example in this film that, that, you know, where money and privilege literally was going to save the life uh, or theoretically was, go, you know, if things played out, was going to save the life of this family or this kid and not this uh, father's daughter. Now, did you find, okay, I'm not, it's coming back to me, but did it, did he take his hand off his daughter's bleeding womb, which wound if you think about it was fail right Mm -hmm. couldn't we make the argument that she would have been her life would have been saved if he kept his hand on that wound did he take his hand off it in order to kill um mr park if i remember correctly she asked him to take her his hand off it hurt it hurt Right. I guess, you know, he's not a medical guy. So, I mean, you know, normally a medical person would have to ignore that cry right. of pain, but that's where we see that, you know, his, his love for his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Well-intentioned, but misguided. And Mr. Park is yelling at him the whole time, you know, give me the keys. We've got to go. And, and, and all of that. So you know, all, all of that is building up, uh, I think. But I right. think the daughter was, 
uh, you know, th that was a, obviously a fatal stab wound. So I don't think there's anything that um, Mr. Kim could have done to, to save her life. And Mr. Park was asking basically uh, ignore that yeah. bleeding, dying girl, who, by the way, he didn't know that was his daughter. Right, right. right. In other words, forget about her. She's, you know, it's not something he was articulating, but obviously it was, you know, in his consciousness to say, you know, don't mind her. <laughs> let's let's get my son to uh, to the hospital. So I think that that goes back to something we were talking about earlier, and I think it is one of the themes of this film is that we never really know um, the people that are that are in our lives, um, or how 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 much can we know the people yeah. in our lives? Right. And you know what? Another another twist in the film that I wasn't expecting, and you know, wasn't expecting any of the twists, but. It, Another twist at the end was when we finally see uh, the son, um, the park son, working his way up the chain and eventually getting into a situation where he was able to buy the home. And uh, what do parasites do in the end? <laughs> or what can they do in the end? That's a dream. He doesn't do it. Yeah. It's He's a dream. Fantasizing it. Yeah. What, um, what happens in the end is it, it's sorry for the background noise. Uh, Where are you? Are you okay? Yeah. Well, why don't you explain where you are? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I decided to be thematic and film in my basement. But unfortunately, <laughs> my monster water heater keeps kicking on. It's, it's one of those old ones still covered in asbestos. <laughs> if I showed it to you, you'd be shocked. Um, so uh, it starts and ends. The film starts and ends with um, almost the same shot of the cell phone and suggesting very much like of mice and men, they start and end in the same place. He's, the house is a fantasy. He's never going to get there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's my take on it. Interesting. So yeah, I don't know how I missed that. It was a that the ending was a dream. I goes to show you, I should watch these films a couple times before I uh, <laughs> do an episode on it. It wasn't clear. Um, yeah. Okay. It wasn't clear. So and I think it was a little ambiguous on purpose. Yeah. Right. I agree. Interesting. But it was a nice bookend to the film, how it begins and ends with that same shot and, and really the importance of the cell phone and how important that is to our lives today. Uh, you know, when, when, in that first scene when he's holding up the cell phone because he can't get any Wi-Fi uh, and he finally gets a little bit Wi-Fi, if he's standing in just the right place and, and his mother says, you know, I want WhatsApp. Uh, can we get WhatsApp and, and all that? Another good film that came out, it's, it kind of makes a similar statement on class, uh, is Knives Out. Yeah. Um, if you and, and it ends with a brilliantly composed shot as well, uh, if you get a chance to see that. What's the significance of the public urinator? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, you know, he came into the, the movie a couple times, right? And it, yeah. I don't know, just uh, what do you think? What, what, what's up with that? What did that demonstrate or <laughs> convey anything or is it just uh sometimes a cigar is just a cigar uh, it could be um i think it signifies at least for me that people will piss all over things that that they don't own and, and it, it, little regard for for human decency so i, I you know i i don't want to go too far into what i think the director was trying to do but for me it was it was it was all about a lack of respect. And, and I know the guy was drunk. Uh, the public urinator was drunk. Um, and that's in itself another issue. 
Um, but the fact that, you know, he's, 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 he's peeing all over the place right in front of their home. Uh, and then they, you know, they finally get so fed up that they go out to, to confront him and, and, and he starts peeing in their direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm still dealing with this noise. So I, I thought that was a good answer. I didn't have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just maybe the whole idea. It's something that that family just had to deal with. It was a regular part of their lives. And, um, which obviously is in stark contrast to this other family that we're, we're, we're watching and, and their life is just completely picturesque, beautiful and unblemished. Now, if I remember right, the first time we see the public urinator and maybe I'm paying too much attention to this so-called character, but they just sort of watched them, right? I mean, they, they, was, they didn't really necessarily deal with them. Am I correct or... Yeah, you're, that's how I remembered as well. They they kind of just let him go. But then the friend comes, uh, Min, who actually is the catalyst for getting them uh, to, to get into the park's house, and, and he confronts them. He's that kind of outside uh, person who comes into their home and, and, and really changes everything. And then we never see him again. Yeah, he, he takes care of two problems for them, and then he disappears. Yeah. yeah. Right. He leaves them with the stone, of course, that... that, that uh, sculpture or, or whatever it is and and then he's gone yep yep thanks guy whoever you are <laughs> yeah. i kept expecting him to show up again because it didn't make sense to me why he handed that to to um his friend knowing that he was not really a reputable guy um yeah and he never he never showed up again he said something if i remember correctly that he was the person he was the only person he could trust because he had a crush on on the park's daughter as well so he was waiting for the park's daughter to graduate from high school so that he could ask her out. And he couldn't ask his college buddies to step in and, and, and be her tutor because he didn't trust them. So there is, which interestingly enough, Min has a trust, uh, a, a bit of trust in this kid. Yeah. So, so here's a, 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 I think I picked up on this. So when the sister takes her panties off in the, in the limousine to frame the chauffeur driver, yeah. Mr. Park keeps them. And then later, we're and they're on the couch, and they're they're starting to get a little frisky. Doesn't he ask his wife to put them on? Am I, I don't remember I, that part. I hope I'm not imagining that because that's crazy. But I thought, <laughs> I, I thought at one point, I thought it was I thought it was funny because again, we're still you know very darkly funny at this point. I mean, now that you're bringing it up, I think you it, it's ringing a bell. So um, maybe it's, all right. I missed that part completely. There's so many darkly comic moments in the beginning of the film. And even the violence is almost, I, I hate to say it because, you know, people die, but it's almost over the top to the point right. where it fits the tone of comedy, but just really black, dark comedy. Yeah. Especially, it's interesting that one of his conditions missed uh, the Kim son after he recovered. He just had this condition where he was just sort of laughing at everything, no matter how how inappropriate. I thought that was... He almost felt, I don't know, I, I, he felt uncomfortable watching him do that. You know, I, I remember just like kind of squirming as he was, I forget some of the things he was laughing at, but it was just. Even the detective calls it into question, right? He can't understand why he's laughing in the hospital bed when the detective's trying to read him his Miranda rights. Right, right, right. Another interesting thing I thought is a little motif that happens where Mr. Park mentions a couple times that he uh, he appreciates it when his driver does not go close to that line 
he kept mentioning this this line that can't be crossed. And uh, of course, you know, we're we're to think that it's basically the separation that he has in his head that look, just let's just not forget that you're my you're my driver. Yeah, you're you're subservient to, to me. Uh, you can be friendly. You could, you know, we can talk, but let's, let's, let's not pretend we're too close here. So it seems like Mr. Um, Mr. Kim got dangerously close mm-hmm. on a couple of occasions. Am I remember that correctly. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Even, yeah. He spoke at one point sort of too familiarly and, and Mr. Park dressed him down for it. Yeah. 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 So those are the parts where, I guess, as we were talking about earlier, where you start to say, oh, yeah, um, I wanted to like this guy a little bit yeah. more. Then he starts talking about that and then, you know, the smell thing. So, you know, no one looks good in this, comes out looking very noble in this film, which is obviously exactly the point, and, and, and they're not meant to. Um, they all, they're all equally flawed, even the, uh, the poor... Yeah. housekeeper who yeah. got fired for for no reason she was likable until she came back on that rainy night and then she was laughing hysterically as well as if she had to you know um which i i just found very strange yeah it, it, it seems like you can get you can get fired without you get fired a little bit easier it seems if this is if this is accurate right. in uh in south korea you know just no questions asked <laughs> you're just you're gone yeah. Um, so a little bit more difficult in, in many cases in this country to fire people. <laughs> but I think it's a universal notion, and, and we, we have that in this country, that, that being rich somehow makes you better than other people, that you are somehow you know, more worthy just because you're rich. And if you're poor, therefore, you must not be worthy. And we, of course, we know that's not true, but there is that underlying attitude. Um, Also, if you're poor, it's somehow your fault that you're not working hard enough or you're not ambitious enough or or something. I I had a a friend who I I very much disagree with ideologically who basically once said being poor is a choice. Yeah. And I thought that was an incredibly obtuse statement. Yeah. No, it's it's a complete falsehood. And that that implies everybody can be rich if if that if that were true. And we know that there's that, uh, there's not enough money <laughs> at least out there to, uh, go around because so much of it's tied up. Now we don't want to get too into economics here, but, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I found this to be a very compelling film. I just, I, as, as I'm talking now, I'm, the entire episode, I'm saying to myself, I just want to see this movie again. I want to, there's going to be more to see. There's going to be so many layers that I think this film sustains many viewings. And having only seen it once, I feel like I almost haven't seen it at all. <laughs> I agree. Oh, I no doubt. It, it definitely um, it demands several viewings. Yeah, yeah. So and I can't help but think too, because you know, when you watch a film in subtitles, there's always a sort of an awkwardness, and it's not just the disconnect between the words and the way the mouths are moving. But, you know, when you translate one language into another, you either, you, you preserve meaning or you preserve mm-hmm. lyricism, but, but rarely both. And you, you have to wonder how much in, in, in Korean this, this would be even elevated. And I don't speak Korean, but, uh, you know, there, there might even be subtleties and nuances mm-hmm. beyond what we were able to see on the screen. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, 
Walt, I think it was very astute of you to contact a colleague that we both both know who spent some time in South Korea. And I would I'd be absolutely fascinated to hear her insight on this because there's so many layers to this that we that are just have gone over our heads, I'm sure, because we we know we're not familiar with that culture. So there I'm sure there's so many norms that we just um, just sort of went out went over our heads and we're just not really kind of getting unless we are some dynamics that are, are in the film the, between the, you know, the relationships and the expectations that we're just not seeing. So I just got another uh, upgrade window from Zoom. So we have a few more minutes. Can you hear me, folks? Yeah. All right. Sorry. I forgot I was muted. You guys didn't hear anything I just said. <laughs> no. My furnace is on again. It's working. It's good. That's yeah. But um, yeah, it would have been nice to have her as a as a as a guest, a special guest. And uh, Andrew, I'm, you know more than anyone here that you know as a you know professor of comparative literature, right? I mean, it's, there's so much in in the language itself, and that's a limitation that we have just watching it translated. That's you know, right. Language uh, translation is first of all interpretation. So you can never translate verbatim. So we're always working off the the assumption that this is as close as the translator could could try to get to the actual meaning. But it's it's really the the words we're reading in English are the words of the translator, not necessarily the words that are being spoken. Absolutely. Yeah. But that this story holds up to that and yeah. still speaks to us on so many levels. You know, again, speaks to the greatness of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Heck, I mean, I think this film, I think a lot of great films will, would sustain itself if you watched it on mute, you know, if you just uh, visually, you know, just watching it, it's, it's still, I think, would come through as, as powerful. So I agree. So, yeah, guys, this has been a interesting episode. It's uh, kind of a, a new, a new thing for us to review a film after seeing it once. And, um, in our very first foreign film. So, and a film that's very recent. So I think it's uh, hopefully something we can do more of. So uh, it's been great. So great. And thanks for showing us your basement. Walt. (laughs) Pleasure. (laughs) It's a bunker. There's no one living down there. I hope. (laughs) Actually, there's a room off the basement that someone does live in, but I'm aware they're there. All right, everyone. So um, we're uh, we're thank you, thank you for sort of uh, sticking with us with the technical difficulties. We have uh, two parts here, I guess, by uh, <laughs> by necessity. We had an interruption in the middle, so thank you for bearing with us. And um, we hope that you'll go onto our Facebook page and comments. Let us know what you think about the uh, the film and anything you've heard today. And please rate us on iTunes. And uh, we also have the video feed on uh, on YouTube posted. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Walt. Thank you. And uh, we'll uh, see you all next time on The Classroom Critics. Take care, everyone. Hello? Are we out? Can you hear me? Yeah. Can't see you, but we can hear you. There's a picture. There you go. <laughs>